Welcome to Drinking With Authors. I'm your host, Erica Lance. My co-host today is the amazing Bo Lake. And our guest today is Liza Taylor. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Okay, let's talk about what we're drinking. So I was recently in Ireland and Scotland. And um, this is going to go to the story of what I'm drinking, I promise. What... Um, one of my friends was there, kept ordering this thing, and I thought it was so disgusting. I'm like, why do you keep ordering that? And it was gin and ginger ale. And yes, the same face that Bo just made. That was the face I made many a nights while they were ordering this. And I, I was like, what are you doing? And then finally, they're like, just taste it. And I was like, okay. And I was ready for it to be terrible. It is magnificent. It sounds like it went bow. I'm, you're going to try it next time you're with me. I didn't put the um, one, two, is they have rhubarb gin over there, which mm-hmm. is even better. But this is just regular botanical gin and fever, fever tree ginger ale. I'm just saying it's pretty epic. I think people should try it. There we go. Bo, what are you drinking? I am just drinking water today. I'm not having any fun. I already drank a bunch of coffee, so I can't drink more coffee. I understand that. I do. Liza, what are you drinking? I am drinking my favorite afternoon summer cocktail, an Aperol spritz with a sprig of rosemary from my garden. I love that. So I had one of those for the first time when I was in Ireland as well. Ah. And they're amazing. They have grapefruit in them. I'm just. it's it's, um, Yeah, it's a bitter orange aperitif. Um, it's super refreshing when it's hot. It's almost a hundred in Virginia where I'm sitting right now. Oh my goodness. Oh yeah. my goodness. Yes. I'm, I'm not going to say what temperature it is here because I'll just piss people off. Okay. So <laughs> for those that may not know you, what do you write? I write historical novels and the, um, the two I've had published, um, are set in 1924 and the second one, which is a standalone sequel, is set in 1932 um, in Virginia in the house where I'm sitting now, which is an old farmhouse. And um, there's also there are settings in New York, in Prohibition era New York and Jazz Age Paris and Washington, D.C. and Boston. Wow. So when did you. When, OK, we like to Scooby do this one. Did you start your writing career? I was really, really late to the party. Um, when my uh, daughter went away to school, I was an empty nester and I uh, wasn't working full time anymore. And I decided that I was going to use that time to do something I I wanted to do for myself. So I went back to school to study English literature and I went to our local community college and I had this rock star professor. And I took everything he was teaching. And then that morphed into trying to get a second degree in literature. And I was, I just, I loved talking to people about books and writing. And then that led to um, my first writing course. I think I was, uh, it was 10 years ago. And it was how to how to write a novel was basically for college credit, and um, I started working on what is now my first novel. And um, the class ended, and I thought I really enjoy doing this, putting the words together, and 
coming up with the story and doing the research. And so I stuck with it and um, looking for that English degree, uh, I ended up applying for uh, MFA programs and went to Vermont College of Fine Arts starting in 2016, finished in 2018. And when I started that program, I had been um, signed with my first agent in a revise and resubmit um, status. I don't know if you know what that is for the Absolutely. I'm a publisher too. I know exactly what revise and resubmit means. Okay. So yes. So she liked my work, but felt like it wasn't, you know, ready to send out yet. So Mm -hmm. for 11 months, we worked together and then we sort of, I was getting my MFA and I was excited about where my writing was going and how it was evolving. And, but I was getting away from being the writer that this agent had signed and she did sign me, but then we broke up anyway. Um, what happened was I had that finished manuscript and I got another agent and, um, was working on that. So for my MFA work, I had to come up with new work. Um, every month I had to turn in 30 pages of new work. And so I was thinking, oh, you know, I can't be working on this first novel with my advisors. So I started a second novel and made it a sequel just because I already had the characters and the settings and everything, you know, so it's not cheating. It's not piggybacking. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So then that ended up being um, my second novel. That's very cool. What made you choose historical fiction? Um, Well, I've always loved my favorite books are books from uh, like I love Victorian English literature. Um, I really am drawn to those sorts of books more than modern writing. And so, and I love history. So I started doing research and when I was starting my first book, I, um, and taking this class, as I told you, I was texting and walking and I fell and I broke my ankle and I was stuck at home with a broken right ankle for eight weeks, sitting on my porch in September. And um, the the teacher said, you know, you have to first pick a setting for your novel. And I said, it's going to be set right here because I can't move from here. And um, the house where I am now was built around 1820. It was was just a simple farmhouse. But I thought there's some stories, you know, in this house. And what would be an interesting time period to write about if the house was built around 1820? what's an interesting time. And um, one thing that really influenced where the story started was a piece of, I wish I'd brought it downstairs with me, a piece of porcelain, which is a a fractured shard of a Victorian doll's face. And when Mm -hmm. I'm digging around out in the yard in my garden, I find antique bottles and old horseshoes and pieces of pottery and porcelain. And I found this doll's face piece. And I remember thinking, I wonder whose doll this was. And what was that little girl's life like growing up here at Keswick Farm in, you know, at the turn of of the century or, um, you know, what's the story behind this and how did it get broken? And so that was, that really was my starting point was the house. And then the house is also a setting in the second novel. That's, I mean, that's, that's wonderful, I think. Um, But 
when you went for this, did you go to it when you went down the English literature? Were you like, I want to be a writer? Was that your thought in doing it? No, it was. I I love these books and I I love being able to write about them and research them and research the authors and talk to other people about them. One of the this and and this was all happening right when online learning was taking off. And so all of a sudden I could take a course from Harvard and um I took a course called um Crime and Horror in Victorian literature and culture. And we read, you know, Frankenstein and Dracula. And um, I just loved that course so much. Um, so yeah, I, I've always been a big reader, but writing came really late. No, that makes sense. Um, Bo, what questions do you, I always monopolize. I always <laughs> she does. Monopolize. I just Bo, wait my turn. Ask, ask some <laughs> questions. As a as a fellow Virginian over here in Winchester, um, what like historical elements of like Virginia did you pull off for your novels? Like, did anything inspire you? Oh yeah, that's a great question. So I'm over here in Albemarle County, right? And down south, about two hours, is Franklin County near Roanoke. And mm-hmm. during Prohibition, it was called the Moonshine Capital of the World. And in in 1935, there was a trial down there that at the time was the biggest trial ever in Virginia. It was called the Great Moonshine Conspiracy Trial. And I ended up taking that that bit of history and moving it forward back into 1924 and using the premise of it, which is that there were, uh, during Prohibition, when there were local sheriffs and the FBI wasn't called the FBI. It was called the Bureau of Investigation. And they were trying to get all these um, moonshiners. And the, the the jails became so overrun with moonshiners, small-time moonshiners, um, that the government, the governors of Virginia said, all right, lay off the little guys. We're going to use our resources to get the big, important guys. Well, a group of crooked sheriffs and officials started um taking kickback from all these moon little moonshiners saying that they would keep them out of jail when in fact they weren't even supposed to be arresting them. So there was this big trial, hundreds of witnesses. So that definitely uh, influenced my plot. And around where I live, there was a lot of moonshining going on here. Um, and I'm in Keswick, Virginia, outside of Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and just this house, this old house, um, like it has a double porch, and at, in my second book, a little boy runs away by going through the upstairs porch. Um, anyway, yeah, yeah, I think Virginia has a lot of history. Are you a native Virginian? Uh, no, I moved here when I was in high school. Okay, so I've been here here for like fifteen years now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. I haven't pulled out another question yet, Erica. I noticed that. I was <laughs> noticing the delay in your question yeah. asking, Bo. But, Sorry. All right. Um, <laughs> no, but Liza, I, I want to know. So you published, when was your first book published? Um, In 20, uh, tw- August of 2020, height of lockdown. You oh, know, wow. I got, I signed um, my book contract in March. Are, are of 2020 
and things were just starting to lock down. And I remember thinking, oh, those poor, poor authors who have books coming out this spring. I'm so glad this will all be over by the time my book comes out. Well, the first one came out August 2020. All the bookstores were closed. Uh, no live events, no book tour, no nothing. And then a year later, second one came out and the paperback version of the first. And again, you know, just nothing, nothing going on. So that that's, that, but it's, it's the only way I've known, you know, to go through publishing, but uh, that was disappointing and, and rough. Yeah. Wow. How did, well, how did you select your publisher? They, um, my agent sent them, um, you know, a query and, um, they made an offer and they, they made the offer on the first manuscript, which went out, um, I guess it was like March of, I don't remember 2018. And I was, I was just wigging out, you know, about the responses and my agent would say, don't worry, these things take time. Meanwhile, I'm over, in my MFA program, trying to finish the second one. And I sent the second one to my agent and I said, oh, well, let's just forget about the first one. You know, I didn't want him to drop me because I know some agents will say the market has spoken. They don't want your book. Bye. Have a nice life. So I sent him the second manuscript and he said, no, I, I think something will happen with the first one. Just be patient. So sure enough, um, he called me. I was on the train back from New York. And um, speaking of drinking, I, um, <laughs> I I was on a seven and a half hour Amtrak trip and I'd had two glasses of wine because, you know, seven and a half hour trip. And I don't yeah. know, somewhere around Philadelphia, my phone rings. I'm like, who's calling me from New York? And it was my agent. And he said, Liza, I have an offer on your manuscript. And I was like, whoa, what, what, what? And um, he said, and I told them that you have a second one. That's a that's a standalone sequel. And they said send it over. So I did. So uh, about five days passed, and they got back to us and said they wanted both of them. So yeah, that's very very cool. So what are you working on right now? Now I'm working on. Uh, I have a third manuscript that I have finished that's with um an editor that I've hired I've never done that before because my first two books were developed with my first agent and with my MFA program where I had these great advisors and peer group um you know to review my work so um I'm going to hopefully get it in shape to be sent out in the next month or so and it's set in 1952 also a young woman from Virginia, not Keswick, not where I live, uh, who ends up in Paris. And it has to do with the fashion piracy and design theft that was going on then in the couture industry of people stealing designs and um, smuggling out drawings and illicit photographs of couture collections and then copying them and selling them, you know, mass producing them, selling them. Well, you're moving forward. Do you think that... <laughs> What is the, so you're doing that with an editor. Are you working on the next one now then? Well, I mean, I'm working on this one from that's set in 1953 and it hasn't sold. It hasn't gone out to publishers yet. So we will see. Fingers crossed. Well, I mean, we wish you amazing luck with Thank that. You. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Thank you.
So go ahead, Bo. What does your typical writing day look like when you're um, like neck deep in a manuscript before you get to like um, editing? Uh, my my best writing days don't happen here at home. They happen mm. in seclusion or somewhere at a retreat or something. And Erica, I was in Scotland uh, oh, and Lord. England at writing retreats over the winter. Um, one called Arvon in um, Yorkshire, England. They have three ho- country houses where you can go for a week and there's one has a course and then there are 14 writers in this wonderful old house. And then the other one was called um, Moniac Moor in Inverness, Scotland. And that's an old farmhouse. And so my best work is in that sort of immersion where there's a rule of quiet and you can't speak and um, they make your meals, but you also have to chip in and cook, you know, one night and keep clean up after yourself, et cetera. Well, um, that that's really interesting because not everybody's a great cook, but continue. <laughs> oh, listen, they had me cooking haggis for the Scottish people. That doesn't sound and... like a great plan. That doesn't and... They made, uh, they didn't make me. I was, I was tasked with baking a vegan chocolate cake that I flubbed so historically that it went into the bin. I mean, you couldn't even like put some ice cream on it. (laughs) It was hopeless. (laughs) But I have to say, I'm a much bigger fan of haggis than I thought I would be. Oh, really? Yeah, I it, I think if it's done really well, I'm a big fan of it. You just can't serve it in the U.S. the way it's traditionally made. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Well, I thought it was interesting that um, they had on the uh, they they have a like a chef in residence, but she she like says, "Oh, here are the recipes," and then she leaves. And so they um, the other part of the menu it was Burns Night actually in Scotland. No, Robert Burns. They had a a bagpiper in the whole nine yards. And we drank scotch, of course. Um, and they they had neeps and tatties. Okay. Which is uh, that vegetable called a swede that looks like a turnip on steroids. It's about this big. I don't think I've ever heard of it. Yeah. yeah. And then um, tatties are potatoes. So I had to peel, I don't know, hundreds of potatoes. and then uh, someone else a woman from saudi arabia i think had to do the the gigantic swede and peel that and we just had no idea what we were doing but everybody ate it (laughs) did did peeling (laughs) potatoes help with your writing process (laughs) well you know in, in that sort of um When you're when you're stuck into something where you're you you just have to check your ego at the door, like cooking a meal in a you know where you don't even know what the ingredients are, and do it as a group. It's it's definitely team building and all. And uh, yeah, and then after we would have our dinner at both of these places, you'd sit around the fire and we'd read work. Either um, people would recite poetry. I remember one woman reciting a poem in her native Irish and it was just breathtaking. Um, so we would, you know, there's, there's just a level of safety and camaraderie, you know, of um, being able to relate with, with other writers and share their journeys and where they are and 
Um, that yeah. has to be so much fun, though. I think that, you know, we don't talk a lot about writers retreats, but I think it's something that people should absolutely look into. Because I've always wanted to go to one. It sounds fun. It's It can be very, very more. And again, like writers groups or anything else, you got to find the right one for you and stuff. Like I have a a, a friend that just went on a writer's cruise that um. is a cruise where you go and you just write for a week straight and stuff like that. And I think sometimes because it's very easy to get distracted by your life. And so being in a place where you can shut everything off, well, you should shut everything off. And especially a place that's not your normal, like you can get sucked into doing laundry or groceries, or I'm going to go do this thing. I think it can make a difference. And especially if you're surrounded by other authors that can keep you motivated and going and have similar struggles as you, because I think most of us are fortunate to live with very supportive people, but they're not necessarily authors. So they're not, they don't, when you say certain things, they don't get what you're like, why you're arguing with your character or something like that. And why that's such a big deal. They're like, okay. And they're trying to be supportive. And you're like, you don't understand. You don't get it. Yeah. Do you all live with people who are, are your first readers? No. My husband has not read, read my book. Yeah. Mine didn't until um, he never asked to read it, which kind of broke my heart a little bit until it was in print. And and yet he could talk about it at a, you know, somebody would say, oh, Liza, I understand you have a book coming out. And he would go off and talk, you know, be explaining what it is. I'm like, you actually haven't read it. And then so he uh, was like internalizing it from what you've said. Yeah. Yeah. But he um, when I first when I had some short stories published. Uh, at the beginning, he would read them once they were, you know, out in the world. And then he'd, he'd say, oh, you know, you should have put that comma here. <laughs> you know, that was kind of, I don't write what he enjoys reading and that's mm -hmm. fine. And so I don't, at this point, I don't really want his, I don't seek his input. Yeah, I, I'm, mine has read, my uh, boyfriend has read some of my horror stuff and things like that. but. I find for me, like, I don't need him editing it or anything like that. If he, he asks and he wants to read it, it's fine. My um, humorous erotica, he doesn't read. Um, and, But he's not the audience for it. It's not what yeah. he likes to read. So yeah. um, it's more, I have a very, very good friend who is the person who reads all of my stuff. And she is not like necessarily a beta reader. She is more just like a, you know, have after I, I can call her and go, I'm having this and this is what I was thinking and blah, blah, blah. And then here are the pages. What do you think? Did I do a good enough job? You know what I mean? And she's that gauge for me. But I, yeah, I, it's kind of like you discover, I think a lot of us discover that our friends and family, as much as we'd like them to be our number one fans, they're not our number one fans you know you're right you're right and also i found um when i you know in the, it, with my past two books i've had friends who read the sorts of books that i write and i will send it to them and say tell me find what's wrong tell me what you don't like and they get back and say oh i really liked it it's like they're afraid to say you know what was this character doing or or they're afraid to criticize they don't because then it becomes personal so i try not to ask my nearest and dearest 
because I'm, a, you know, I, I don't really trust their comments all that much. Yeah. It, I think it works better to have, um, to have a reading group that, you know, and respect and they respect your work and you're trying to just help each other and not, uh, you know, not worry about hurting someone's feelings so much. I agree. 10,000%. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with drinking with authors. Hey listeners, you know me, Eric Lance. You're just listening to me in the podcast that you have, but guess what? I'm doing something new. Yeah, she's joining me, Mark Muncy, the author of the Erie, Florida book series in Erie, Appalachia. And we are hosting a new podcast called Erie Travels. Woo-woo, Erie Travels, which covers things like ghosts, cryptids, weird stuff, UFOs, men in black, all kinds of fun things that people talk about and I'm sure you've discussed with friends. Yep, and you can listen to us on your favorite podcast platform of choice or find us at eerietravels.com and join in the fun and all the spooky goodness. And of course, Mark, what do we always say? We'll see you on the other side. Okay, we're back. So let's talk about um, when you finally, have you been able to do an in-person event with your books now? I have. Um, with the second one, I was able to have an in-person book launch at my local indie bookshop in Charlottesville, Virginia, New Dominion Bookshop. They've been really supportive. And then, um, you know, there's the train passes after a certain amount of time when your book's been out for a year they're on to the next book uh, as far as, you know, social media. I did hire a publicist and I think that helped a lot. Um, I, I was supposed to appear at the Mississippi Book Festival and that got canceled. And then other book festivals went virtual during uh, lockdown and then they could get, you know, John Grisham from his living room. So why would they want me? Um, so there was a lot of that. Um, I have done um, book groups now and um and some interviews. I got to interview Jeanette Walls a couple of weeks ago um, about her new historical novel. She lives up the road about half an hour from where I am. Um, she has a new historical novel called Hang the Moon, and it's also set in Virginia in the 1920s. So I, I got to interview her. That was fun. Um, Very cool. But, yeah. But, you know, um, a live event, I, I've always been one to sort of um, have stage fright and anxiety around being the center of attention and being in front of a crowd. So in a way, having my books come out during lockdown sort of um, got me through that because everything was on Zoom and, and I just, you know, got over it. And then when you get out into the real world in front of a crowd or a, a book group or um, doing an interview, it hit me hard that, you know, nobody's going to represent my work as well as I am. And they're here to be informed and, you know, I need to get over myself and, and do a good job at this. So that was, that was a good thing to learn at the age of 60. <laughs> Glad I did. <laughs> do you all ever have issues with, you certainly don't seem to have any issues with uh, performing or being in front of a crowd. I, I, I have don't. severe anxiety. So oh, I'm, yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. Bo, Bo has anxiety. I don't because I 
so when I was much younger, I was terrified. I was a nerd. I was terrified of groups, crowd stalking. And then uh, when I was 16 years old, I had this like moment where I was like, I actually don't give a shit when anybody thinks of me. You either like me or you don't like me. That's how that goes. And then as an author, you're a celebrity. So you don't have to go out there as yourself. You go out there as your your celebrity authorness, which is different because you meet any actors and things like that. They, they could be completely nice, but they're putting on a performance when they go out on stage. When you're doing anything like that, it's a performance. So if you look at it from through that lens and go, I'm going out there as, um, you know, Erica Lance author, that that's who they're listening to or Erica Lance podcast host, because it's sort of a different job than just yourself. Because here's the thing, if you can't do anything to change their opinion of you necessarily, right? You can just be there, be talking about what you want to talk about. And then they either like you or they don't like you. So I, that's why it's different for me. And I also think you should do things that you're afraid of. I absolutely agree. And how fortunate you were to figure that out at such an early age. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that was so, Bo, I, I also. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Bo, I have anxiety issues as well. And I ended up channeling them into one of the main characters of my second novel. She has paralyzing anxiety attacks. And. I can relate. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of no, and yeah, and there's a lot of fake it till you make it because uh, I've been to a lot of cons this year and been on a lot of panels this year. And a year ago, I could I would be like, "There's no way, I do that. no way." But I think, like Erica says, you put on this other like face, and you're like, "Okay, I'm both author, not both person," and it kind of you just kind of do it, and then it, once you make people laugh at a panel then you're golden and you're like oh this is fine I like this I like that people are listening to me yeah and and you know every time you do it well or just get through it 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 gets easier I mean um yeah yeah, yeah. I used to be physically shaking and worried that my voice was quavering um and it was a it was a thing and then it builds on itself um, so I, that's, that's been just a really valuable hurdle to get through at, um, at the age where I am. Cause I thought for the rest of my life, I would just avoid ever being in front of a crowd of people having to say something. <laughs> and now people are showing up just to see you. So that's a new thing too. Like I, when people come up to me and they're like, I read your book and I really liked it. I'm like, my book, you're talking about my book. And like, it blows my mind still. It's just so crazy. Yeah, it, and it does. Makes you feel real good. It does feel good. And and yet, one of the things that surprised me the most about getting published was the vulnerability. That um, when I realized that people I'd never heard of were going on Amazon and leaving reviews of my book, I, I felt... I, I, I don't know. I just felt so vulnerable. Like, it's out there in the world. Anybody can say anything about it, about me now. And I, um, it, it took me a little while to get used to that exposure. You know, not, not that I was, you know, like everybody was talking about my books. They weren't, but, um, but yeah, it's, a, it's definitely something to deal with. 
Yes. And I think, you know, one of the things too, we have to remember is that um, your fans are like that too. You do have fans that have the inability to come up to you and be like, Hey, I love your thing, you know, because they have crippling anxiety themselves, you know, and can relate. I mean, I, I, I've never been like, Oh, I'm going to go up to a celebrity and tell them that I like their stuff. Like, like, at the last convention I was at, there was like a podcaster. I'm like, oh, I love, I love this person. And everyone's like, go talk to him. And I'm like, I can't, I can't go talk to him. I can't tell him that. <laughs> it's like I hid. <laughs> so I think it's probably a lot of that too. Like your readers are like, I, I can't go talk to them. If I talk to them, then they are going to perceive me and that can't happen. Like, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I was at, um, at a book festival before my books came out. And Colson Whitehead was the headliner, and I'm such a fan of his. And he was at the reception afterwards, and he like sort of walked in, and I was standing. I was like the first person he encountered, and I thought, I just cannot, I cannot. And I had this posse of college girlfriends with me, and they knew that I was so in love with his books. And the Underground Railroad had just come out, and uh, one of them just came right over with her phone and said, let me get a picture. And I just, you know, here I am, me, Colson Whitehead. And we ended up having a really nice conversation and I got him a drink and it wouldn't have happened. I would not have gone after him, but he kind of like, you know, just walked right in and there I was. So I understand what you're saying, but I always kick myself afterwards. Like, damn, why didn't I go over and get that photo and tell that person? you know, that I like their work. You could have um, become like best friends. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Famous things, famous things. Okay, so we are going to go into our literary briefs. Dun, dun, dun. I Don't we have theme have music, music now for that? I think there's music now. I'm 95% sure there's music, but it's fine. We're Is it just it. you going dun, dun, dun? I'm not even sure. So... <laughs> It's fine. It's fine. Um, they I swear there's enjoy. music. I haven't checked it. I believe them. Okay. So, Liza, are you ready? I, I don't know what we're doing. We're doing rapid we're fire rapid questions. Rapid fire questions. Okay. And they're hard. So get ready. Yikes. They're not, okay. they're not hard. Don't give her anxiety. What are you doing, Bo? We just had that conversation. And now you're... <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me have another sip of my Aperol Spray. Yeah, yeah, let's all just do that. Prepare for Bo to be terrifying. <laughs> okay, Liza, what is your favorite book of all time? Oh, um, Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Very, very cool. Why? I love all of Dickens, and uh, I... I his characters characterization is uh is amazing and his plotting I think I've always admired yeah okay I like it I also got to see Eddie Azar do Great Expectations the one woman show it was pretty amazing in New York oh wow yeah so that was pretty cool um Miss Havisham I mean is there a better character in the whole world than Miss Havisham I don't think so what about your least favorite book? Oof. Wow. Um, oh, 
you know, I've forgotten them. I, I'd either put them aside. I, I'm, at, I'm at the age now where I don't feel obliged to finish a book if I don't like it. That's I fine. Say, you can be one of those that you put aside. And it's not. I'm, I'm having a hard time coming up with a um, a title, but I would say the genre is that sort of, um, God, I hate this term, chiclet, of, uh, with product placement. Um <laughs> You know, like she 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 made up her bed with the frette four hundred count cotton sheets and uh, poured herself a glass of Vuitt Clicquot, and that that I just cannot endure. I just cannot. So I would say, and and you all know what I'm talking about. Okay? Yeah, up with the title right now, but that sorry, dogs are barking. That's uh, we can't hear them, and I get it. Okay, uh, Bo, what question do you want to ask next? Who is your favorite author of all time? Um, that's a toughie of living authors. I would say Donna Tart. of, uh, all time. I, I, uh, Zora Neale Hurston is a huge favorite. Their eyes were watching God is, um, oh my God, that audiobook. Do y'all like audiobooks? I am such an audio book person. Um, oh, and okay. Sorry. I'm, I'm having more than one true grit by Charles Portis. If I had to tell people to read one book, it would be that one. And Donna Tart reads that audiobook amazingly. Very cool. Slays it. Yeah. So yeah, I would say um yeah. I love Donna Tart's uh secret history. That's my favorite. Mm. Yes, yes. Brilliant book. Well, who's your least favorite author of all time? <laughs> Anyone who writes books with product placement and uh <laughs> Um, wow. wow, Bo. Wow. Yeah, I, I don't have a, I can't come up with one and I'm not, I'm not being coy. I just, honestly, I can't, can't come up. Um, oh, who's Colleen Hoover. Okay. Yeah. A lot of people are into that now. I don't have it in for her or anything, but I, <laughs> you know, can't get past page two. It's just something that you don't like. That's fine. Yeah, That's how exactly. that works. Exactly. We're not going to make everyone happy as authors. We will. Right. Yeah. Um. What about who would you cast as the leads in both your books? Oh. Um. Millie Bobby Brown, most could be any either the character in the first one or the second one. I think she's just amazing. Although, in 2020 when the first one came out the main character is 20 years old i thought Elle fanning would be really good as a sort of flapper um Ooh, she would be you know yeah um so yeah um and then there's a, a an african-american character who is um based inspired by josephine baker and i thought carrie washington would just be amazing to play her very very cool now, if you could have lunch with any author, alive or dead, who would you want to have lunch with Charles Dickens? Uh, hmm. Or would you choose someone else? I would I would probably say t maybe Toni Morrison, but I think she I'd be so intimidated that I uh, you have to I go sit at the other to, table <laughs> to, to speak. Um, <laughs> um who else? Uh, Emily Bronte. Oh, very cool. 
Very cool. What about your favorite book to movie adaptation? Oh, 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 oh. You know, I just love, uh, there's so many um, BBC adaptations I love of the classic English literature um, of Jane Austen. And and I, I really like the period pieces, um, but I, I'm having a hard time coming up with maybe Pride and Prejudice sort of in any, especially the, didn't they do it recently? And it was sort of off script. Uh, I think it was Pride and Prejudice. So. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I'll, I'll go with that. What about least favorite where you do not think they did a great job with it? <sighs> I didn't think, speaking of Donna Tart, I didn't think the goldfinch was as compelling as, as the novel. Very cool. Okay. What about your favorite writing snack when you're sitting down and writing? What is your favorite snack to have? kind of like what's ever on the in front of the shelf in the refrigerator when I open the door but I do um when I'm like on a deadline for editing or something I I let myself have unlimited diet Pepsi and candy I love candy so um uh good and plenties oh a lot of Hot tamales, the candy. Yeah. So you're like movie theater candy. Oh, yeah. Milk duds. Mm -hmm. Oh, milk duds. Yeah. So the, the second, my second novel in all good faith set in 1932, that one, um, it, it, it has to do with the candy industry and the people who live in this house now in the 1930s during the Great Depression are turning, um, they originally turned to moonshining in the 20s. And then in the 30s, with the same family, they are changing the family orchard business where they can preserves and jelly and stuff. There, there were all kinds of blights and droughts and, and crop failures and crops weren't bringing any money. So they change over to candy production. So I did, had to do a lot of research on candy. I'm a huge candy person. Um, so, yeah. So candy and Diet Pepsi are my my indulgent snacks. I like it. And I, you know, I, I need to write a book about candy or chocolate or something. Cause then I can chalk up my horrible eating habits too. I'm researching my I feel book. Like it's research. Yeah, Fine. exactly. Researching my book. <laughs> Bo? If there was a genre, what genre would you write? Or let me rephrase that. What genre would you like to write if you weren't going to write historical fiction? Literary fiction. I would I would love to think that um I could create like super highbrow sentences and have a vocabulary that would just, you know, blow people away, but um yeah. Definitely that. Very cool. What about um where somewhere you would love to travel to if like price and time and stuff was no limit, you could go anywhere, where would you go? Ooh. Um Paris is my favorite place, and my first book is partially set there, and the book I'm working on now is mostly set there. Um, but as to what time period, I, I, I'd like to think in the 20s, but 
um, as much I think as we romanticize the 20s and 30s, they they were hard times. Um, life was harder. Um, but yeah, maybe Paris in the 20s. Um, I think about what, what was a Woody Allen movie, Midnight in Paris, that that was so fabulous um, with those all the right all the literary characters and going to the speakeasies. Well, they weren't speakeasies, but nightclubs. I think that'd be fun. Very cool. What about a literary world? Where would you go? Uh, Victorian England, maybe. Does that London? No, totally. Because the way the books write them, a lot of times, like that's the version I would go to because otherwise they didn't have deodorant. They didn't bathe very frequently. <laughs> there were teeth problems. Like there's a list, right? But you go for like Victorian England in some books and you all that's swept over and they have this beautiful smile and all that. So. Yeah. Meanwhile, you know, the, the streets are full of horseshit and you know, it's yeah, it wasn't, wasn't really as we romanticize that a lot. Of course we do because nobody wants to read about the other times. Right. Like, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, Bo. I'm How do you do deal? Question, then oh. I'm going to do final. Go ahead. Okay. All right. So I don't have to do the best question because you're going to do the best question because you're the okay, last. Okay. You know one. what? You and your pressure just ask the darn question. <laughs> How do you deal with writer's block? Um. Don't hate me. I haven't actually had a period of experiencing it because I haven't been at this all that long. Um. Mm -hmm. I, with this book uh, that I'm working on now, I wasn't on a deadline. So um, I had the luxury of putting it aside for a while. And what I found was that um, I started it, I guess, three years ago now, but it was while my first two books were coming out. So I had to sort of keep those sets of characters in my head to be able to talk about them and remember historical dates and places and, and reaction and reactions and relationships between the characters so I had to keep those fresh so I didn't want to clutter my mind with a new set of characters so I kept sort of putting that off and it wasn't really a block it was more of a um, just putting it all aside and then the second book came out and I would also have to talk about the first book because they connect um, so that was a challenge and but then it got to be frustrating because I wanted to start telling this third story that was really getting somewhere in my head. Um, and then at a certain point, I was able to just sort of luxuriate in getting this out. And there have been times I wouldn't I wouldn't call it block, but there have been times when I have put it aside and because I don't write sequentially, I write scenes and then cobble them together, sort of knowing where they're going to end up. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't say I was blocked, but I would say that there there were definitely times in the past couple of years when I had put this project aside, knowing that I, I couldn't quite go forward with it. And if I'd been on a deadline, I'd have called it writer's block. Mm -hmm. Very How cool. about y'all? Okay. Do y'all have writer's block? What do you do oh, every day? Every day. I don't have writer's block. I think a lot of times writer's block is you've gone down a way of the story that doesn't work and you need to go back to where it was doing well, you know, because I think a lot of times 
you try to force yourself through this thing because you're like, no, they're going to get on the subway, right? But it doesn't work to put them on the subway. So you will wind yourself up trying to put them on the damn subway instead of just calling it a day and doing that. And also, I think you have to know your own um, way of writing, depending on the mood and what's going on in your life. If you're really stressed out, it may not be a good time to write. and You're not going to get a lot. But, um, you know, sitting down like there was an author and I can't forget his name right now because Jen but um, who had said that he writes like a minimum of like 200 words a day or something like that. Like that's his goal. He sits down and sometimes it's just garbage. Like the next day he just deletes all of it. But then sometimes that leads him to writing 5,000 words in a day because it's yeah. going well. So I think you can get writer's block, but I always feel like it's when you're trying to force something that can't be forced, like is not working. So go back to when it was doing well, or skip and go to another part of the story and let that go because writer's block only gets to be a block if you sit in it for too long. Yeah, that that's really good advice. What where I get myself in trouble is I'll find some interesting historical factoid and want to sort of shoehorn it into the plot somewhere and then I find I'm sort of writing around it and and like you said Erica, I have to finally tell myself, you know, this has to come out. Yeah, yeah, excise it, take it out, use it for a different project later. Yeah, how about you, Bo? I have really bad imposter syndrome, I think, is part of it. And when I don't have a deadline, my brain just, like, freely moves around and I don't get anything done because I'm lost in this, like, mire of all these ideas. And, like, I need to, like, focus on one thing. And I just have a really busy schedule, too, with work and a kid. So I'm just, like... Uh, writing is going to go on the back burner. I'll figure it out eventually. <laughs> and then I just start playing Baldur's Gate 3 and don't write. So I, can't, I keep getting distracted. That's yeah. my problem. And I don't consider that nearly as much sort of writer's block as just like not sitting down and actually being able to make yeah. time to write. It's different when you're sitting there looking at the screen and the cursor. But I just write the same section over and over again. I don't move on. I just keep rewriting that same section. Yeah, it's very got stop doing that. I know. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, you read things and they say, oh, just, you know, get it down. Just get the draft finished. But I'm like, no, no, no. I, I it has to be perfect. That word back there. And I haven't come up with the right word. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm forever going two steps forward, one step back. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, that's never good. Okay. Final question. Do you read your reviews? Oh, talk about imposter syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, uh, I don't anymore is the answer to that. I did at the beginning because I was, I was, just deer in the headlights. Wow. my There's a page on Amazon with my name on it. And if you Google me, wow, I'm on Amazon. And I started reading them all. And what happens is uh, being someone who also has imposter syndrome is you internalize the bad mm-hmm. and the good just kind of floats away. And it got to be really painful, um, shameful feeling. I internalized it as feelings of shame. And that was, I finally got to the point where I said, I cannot 
put myself through this. So I, I go on and I look at the star rating of how many reviews there are and where my star rating is. Like I occasionally in a downtime or whatever, in a moment of weakness, I will go read some. And somebody gave me one star because the book wouldn't load on their Kindle. It was like a free, ver- you know, it was free for a week or something. And I was like, you know, you just, I cannot, that, that cannot define me. So uh, I don't. You're like, I didn't put it on your Kindle. I'm sorry. Well, no, it's, it's, here's the thing about reviews. People tend to write reviews when in a more negative way. It's unfortunate, but people tend to, if they're pissed off about something, review it more than if they positively liked it. Also, the review engines for a lot of these things, like on Kindle, it's not easy to review a book. It's Mm -hmm. not. So I think that you have to remember that the reviews are for the readers and not for the author. The only thing I think reviews can be good for is if, especially if you're self-published and you're not taking the means of getting things edited and things like that, Those are the reviews where they go, hey, there's a bunch of plot holes in this. This character changes race halfway through. It doesn't make sense. There's a lot of stuff where I feel like reviews can do correction of writing that. And if that's happening, that's terrible because that's going to forever be there. But I think a lot of times reviews are not the greatest thing to measure yourself as an author. It's just the quantity of them really and that's for sure your algorithms, not because they mean anything, the actual writing, you know? Okay. Yeah. Liza, shameless self-promotion time. Where do people find you in your books? Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, your local indie. Um, hard, they're in hardcover, paperback, and audiobooks. So Audible, also if you like audio uh, books. Yeah. Very and cool. uh, my website, LizaNashTaylor.com. Very, very cool. Awesome. It was so wonderful having you on this podcast with us. Erica and both, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I'm honored to be a, your guest. Awesome. We're all honored to have you. So guys, this has been Drinking With Authors. I've been your host, Erica Lance. My co-host has been the amazing Bo Lake. Our guest has been Liza Taylor. Don't forget to like, subscribe, leave a review. Um, We say that all the time. We haven't gotten a lot of reviews, so I can tell that you're not listening. No, just kidding. (laughs) Or you're drinking along with us. It's fine. But definitely don't forget to subscribe, and we will see you next time.